You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm your host, Mark Grizzly. As the world comes out of the pandemic being our singular daily focus, our attention is now focused squarely on the unavoidable daily headlines of inflation, supply chains, and energy prices. It feels very real that the economic recovery globally is leading to shortage in just about every aspect of goods, services, and materials. Supply chain disruptions have been the front and center topic since the onset of COVID and now through the recovery. And that's being pointed to as a source of the inflation pressures we're seeing right now. But the focus for many of us is in areas we see tangibly every day. And at the forefront currently, that's the stress of rising energy prices. Oil has recovered its pre-COVID levels and tacked on nearly another 20 bucks. At the same time, natural gas has risen to an even greater extent, more than doubling its 2021 low. My guest today, Jennifer Stevenson, Portfolio Manager here at Dynamic, and based out of the heart of the Canadian energy industry in Calgary, which makes her close to the companies she covers, and also through her regular travel on the ground and other major global energy hubs. Jen's extensive energy industry experience spans nearly three decades, and she's fostered a global approach to casting a wide net in search of the highest quality companies with solid management teams and sustainable long-term business models. But today, we wanted to bring the energy discussion into real and understandable terms. Because when you're standing at the gas pump or paying your heating bills, you're not thinking about the issues of WTI or Brent crude. You're probably thinking WTF. So Jen, welcome and thanks for joining me today. I'm just going to jump right in and talk about what are the primary drivers we're seeing in these energy price increases in energy markets right now? Yeah. Oil is different from natural gas, but the biggest issue with oil prices right now comes down to supply and demand. So we had massive contraction in demand with the onset of COVID. We all witnessed oil prices crash. And then, in fact, WTI went negative on the the futures contract. So that massive collapse in demand created a dearth of cash flow, created a massive contraction in capital spending, and we don't have the supply growth from our usual sources. We, we still have supply. OPEC has spare capacity, but OPEC has been very disciplined about methodically returning that spare capacity to the market to try and shore up and make more healthy, aka higher, the oil price. So so we've had demand rebound sharply as COVID has become better and, and travel mobility is increasing, uh, demand for goods and services is increasing, and, and everything requires energy. So you've got this contraction in supply growth and spending coupled with a recovery that was quite sharp in demand, OPEC bridging the gap to a point but wanting to make sure that prices are are strong enough that it's profitable for their member states to continue to add that spare capacity. And where we used to have growth before from the, the quick supply response areas like U.S. shale, we just do not have that capital being put in the ground to create that growth because that's not what shareholders want. 
Jen, one of the more troubling headlines circling around right now is that we're potentially looking at an energy crisis. And, you know, you don't have to go very far. You open up the news. I was looking at articles this morning, you know, they're talking about streetlights shutting off and factories shutting down. But, you know, in reality, there's recent shortage of gas in the UK being reported, soaring natural gas prices affecting Europe, India running the risk of mass blackouts. Are these just localized issues or are these real symptoms of a larger issue in energy markets? Yeah, the headlines are disturbing, but the headlines also are, I always find them quite inflammatory because that's what gets clicks or papers sold or or whatever the delivery mechanism is. But I mean, if you just think about what's going on, there are high natural gas prices right now. The issue with gasoline, diesel, like petrol in the UK, that's not a supply of the product globally issue at all. That's a regional issue because we have gasoline and diesel, but the issue is getting it to the petrol stations in the UK because it needs to go by truck and they don't have the truck drivers. And part of it is some of the labor shortage that we see in various industries as we work our way out of COVID and out of government wage subsidies. But in the UK, it's really exacerbated by Brexit because the trucking industry is an industry that has employed a lot of foreign nationals and they're unable to be in the country working and therefore we're short thousands of those supply service providers. So that means that there's gas stations that don't have any gas, petrol stations that don't have any petrol. And what happens is that you hear that and what do you do is you instantly go fill up with gas just like everybody went and bought a whole year's supply of toilet paper when COVID started and there was toilet paper shortages. So the gasoline thing in the UK is mostly Brexit and it's fixable. The natural gas situation has been a while in coming because Europe last year had a cold winter and they drew down their storage levels of natural gas as a result. Fine, that happens when it's cold. But they haven't filled them back up to levels that were comfortable heading into this winter because in the meantime, Asia had a hot summer. So there was a lot of demand for natural gas over there. Prices were higher. European utilities didn't want to pay those prices to put the gas in storage. So that's one issue was price. And now that we're heading into winter, it's still price. The other factor that's going on is Europe also gets natural gas from Russia. And there's pipelines that go through the Ukraine and supply is not being added to those because there's a new pipeline from Russia that goes to Germany and it's called Nord Stream 2. And it's fully built. It's full of natural gas, which means if you put some molecules in at the Russia end, you get some out right away at the Germany end. So it's the line pack is in there. It's full of gas, but it's not flowing because it needs approval from Germany, from the government, and it needs approval from the EU. And Germany just had an election and they're putting a coalition government together. And then the question is, what does that government do? They need the gas, but they're also, there's a green party component to that coalition. So that's up in the air. The EU approval is up in the air, and and Putin has said, we're not sending gas through there unless it's approved. So there's a solution to that, but that's political. And in the meantime, there's demand for natural gas, and the prices are high. So where cutbacks can happen, like 
dimming street lights or factories not running as much to burn less natural gas, that's going on. We're also seeing, because natural gas in Europe right now is more expensive than oil, we're actually seeing some substitution in power plants to burn oil instead of burning natural gas to get through this short-term issue. We've also seen increased coal demand to get through this short-term issue in Europe, which is basically winter, because there's more supplies coming on from LNG projects globally. Two of them are in America, but they're not coming on ahead of the EU winter. So that's regional and localized, but it's definitely headline news right now and is impactful right now. I mentioned at the top that, you know, top of mind now is inflation and it's, it's in the news. We're hearing about it, but let's think about it in terms of energy inflation. And I guess the question is, does energy inflation pinch a consumer's pocketbook differently than regular inflation? And, you know, whether or not we think this is transitory or permanent levels of inflation, do you actually think it's going to get to a level where this is going to change consumer behavior? You know, where mom and dad are saying we're not going for that drive or, uh, you know, I'm not going to take the car out this weekend here or there. That's a good question. And, you know, Mark, you and I are both old enough that we can remember times when gasoline prices were, you know, what seemed to be insanely high. What do we do? And when you look at the data, when energy prices are high and you look at the consumer behavior, energy prices have to be exorbitant, like higher than today by a lot. Like like oil needs to be a hundred bucks for a significant period of time before we see any impact in consumer behavior. What changes when a bigger slice of your budget is going to fuel either your home heating or your car is that you make changes in other areas. You you make changes in other expenditures and you make brand changes. So maybe instead of buying craft peanut butter, you buy super brand or whatever. So we don't see the energy inflation impacting the energy demand. It's energy is one of those things, oil and gas, where you actually have a really inelastic relationship. Inelastic means it doesn't change. Most things, the price goes up, the demand goes down. Energy, the demand stays pretty constant and continues to grow a little bit every year even though the price goes up, because it is something that is that essential. Are you not going to drive your kid to their hockey game? Are you are you not going to drive out to your friend's cottage for the weekend because gasoline is a buck 75 a liter versus a buck 25 a liter? You know, this is just an observation, but it's interesting because I've noticed as I started to commute a little bit more again, I'm, I'm realizing in, in major cities, you're seeing less people take public transit and there's still some of that global pandemic fear baked into that. As a portfolio manager looking at energy, do you do you look at that side of it as well, where this whole fear and the you know mass transit and people being in condensed spaces might actually drive more people into fossil fuel using cars and, and that type of thing? You know, that's a good observation because we've certainly seen that through part of the pandemic that when the mobility has increased, it's been private mobility as opposed to public transit because of the COVID contagion fear. And we have seen things like 
you know, car sales in China last year went up because people wanted a private vehicle and not mass transit. So there's definitely an increase in demand for that mobility piece as opposed to public transit. And then over time, I think we'll see that mobility piece move into more electrification. But again, we've got the demand today for that mobility personalized internal combustion engine and over time it moves to batteries it's not it's not a an overnight sensation and the other thing on the mobility front that is happening that affects oil is that we haven't been flying and as countries open up i mean the, the US and Canada have always been open for flights but starting november 8th we can drive back and forth and people start to get more comfortable with flying on an airplane. That might make them more comfortable with mass transit, but certainly they want to go on a vacation. So we see that increased demand for jet fuel, which comes from oil. So we see that trickling into oil demand going forward as well. You know, there's no question we're feeling tangibly daily things like higher prices at the pumps. And if we're also looking at higher natural gas prices, that I guess could mean we're looking at higher heating bills this coming winter. You know, from a purely selfish point of view or a consumer point of view, is there hope that some of these issues might subside or come down as we head into winter holiday season? You know, how, how are consumers thinking about this? With North America, we have cold weather in the winter and demand for natural gas is weather dependent. So gas prices, natural gas prices have softened in October because it wasn't cold yet. And that big Hurricane Ida that hit the U.S. Gulf Coast that had knocked out some oil and gas supply, but gas in particular, that stuff's back on. So that helps supply. But I don't see anything near term for natural gas because winter will come. Every year winter comes and every year there's a period of time when it's cold and every year we need natural gas to meet that weather-related heating demand. So that's going to happen this year. And if it's cold at Christmas, we will have higher natural gas prices. What the Europeans are doing right now in the face of the exact same thing, and they're paying way higher prices than we are because they import so much gas and it's liquefied natural gas. And we talked about what's going on with those dynamics already. But what the European governments are doing is subsidizing either the utilities or the customers themselves to get them through this period of high prices because this is this is not a structural change. This is something that we can see after we get through the winter. We can see more LNG from a few new projects and we can see natural gas supplies meeting demand outside of the winter months. And it's not it's not as much of an issue in North America versus Europe. I mean, our prices are certainly higher, but it's nothing like Europe is. I'm going to ask you a question about a conversation we've had many times before you and I, and that's, I think all of this is showing just how reliant the world still is on fossil fuels. And I'm wondering, does this muddle the case for aggressive climate action? You know, there seems to be a big difference right now between energy today and energy aspirationally. And has this kind of brought some realities into the picture. So COP26, so that's the Council of the Parties, 
which is basically the United Nations meeting on climate change. That happens October 31st to November 12th, so coming up in two weeks. And that's when the 154 or however many countries that signed the UN deal on climate change to keep global temperatures from rising no more than one and a half, maybe two degrees, they all have to reaffirm, demonstrate their commitments. And there's a lot of commitments been made, but the politicians, I find, are really great at saying, yes, this is all going to happen. And they don't listen, I think, to the scientists who say, yes, this is all going to happen, but here's how we need to get there because it's an energy transition. It's not an energy flip the switch. So we can't just say all the electrical generation is going to be uh, wind and solar by 2025. I mean, it's 2021 and three quarters now. So the renewables are super cost effective. They're profitable for the companies doing them. They're big growth areas, yes, but those need to be balanced with the need for reliability. So until we can build the storage to store those generated electrons, we need things like nuclear or we need things like natural gas to provide that base load and that reliability. So I think there'll be lots and lots of headlines coming up with COP26, which is that UN climate meeting, and it's being held in Glasgow, Scotland. And the thing I'm hoping to see from that is some realism as to the pace and some acceptance about things like natural gas, for example, being needed as a bridge fuel as we move through this transition, because the growth in renewables is there, the technology is valid, but the requirement for hydrocarbons for things like simple necessary things like mobility and heat is not disappearing anytime soon, and that needs to be recognized and accepted and adapted into the plans because there's things we can do with hydrocarbons like carbon capture and storage like direct air capture of co2 like like making sure that we're not leaking methane to still use hydrocarbons but do it in such a way that we're able to meet those paris climate agreement goals of that maximum one and a half two degrees of warming not wanting to dive into the political aspects but you know if we're being honest Biden, for example, in the U.S. ran on one of the most aggressive political climate change agendas in history. Does all of this make it a little harder for him to get some of that spending passed? And, you know, from a portfolio management standpoint, there's a lot of opportunities coming out of the significant investment that they were going to be making in climate change and, and clean energy, including some of the targets they've set for themselves. Where does that leave someone to think about, you know, the U.S. influence as a world leader in this particular arena? I mean, Biden certainly campaigned very much on a climate agenda. He's got uh, John Kerry as his climate czar. So they are very, very focused on meeting their green agenda, their clean energy agenda. So I think these bills get passed. And there's so much negotiation politically that goes on with whatever else any any individual member of the house down there can put in those bills but there's an infrastructure bill and there's a budget reconciliation bill that has a whole bunch of infrastructure and clean energy 
components to it. So I do think that those get passed in some measure. And, and quite frankly, whether they're $2 trillion or $3 trillion, it, it doesn't really matter as much as they get passed and that just green lights a massive amount of development and spending on those sectors and in those industries. And individual states have got a lot of autonomy in the U.S. So you see places like California already moving forward on extending the tax credit for wind, extending the tax credit for solar, working on uh, expanding the grid, talking about interfacing grids with neighboring states more so that a problem in California can be fixed by a solution in Oregon or Washington or Idaho that's can get the power over to California because the U.S. is really regionalized. I mean, if you think of that ice storm in Texas last year, one of the problems is Texas is like an island. So when there's a problem in Texas with the electric grid, no one else can help them. So that kind of thing is, is underway and being changed, and that doesn't need senator congressional bills and support to go ahead because that, that can all be done at the state level. So there's lots going on there for sure. Let's zoom out a little here and, and, and take a look at a bigger picture, and, and that is around the question of what does the longer-term supply-demand dynamic look like for oil? Yeah, longer-term is interesting because right now – the oil companies around the world, let's say, let's say everybody who's not an OPEC country, they have been through many, many, many years of growth and spending and not the performance that they would have expected in their shares or not the performance in the oil price if they're a national oil company. And now they're at the point where they completely embrace discipline with their capital, which means that they're all generating huge amounts of cash flow right now because oil and natural gas prices are high. And what they're not doing with the, those amounts of cash flow is drilling a whole bunch more wells. They'll drill more wells to maintain their production, but they're not drilling to grow. So when you look at the long term for oil, for example, Structurally, what we've got is some spare capacity still at OPEC that they meet every month, and every month they decide whether they should produce more or less. And the last few months they've producing every month, they add another 400,000 barrels a day, and they've got some more spare capacity that they can put on the market, and then they're tapped out. The rest of the world is not spending to grow. They're spending to maintain. So I think we're at a place here where energy prices, where they are now, and, and we could say quite comfortably, you know, plus or minus five, eight, ten dollars can be the new band as we go through this transition. And I think that band is quite long lasting because the transition will take time. There's tremendous growth within it from the renewables, but we also have the demand for the legacy oil and natural gas production. And even as that demand slows over time, we don't have growth in supply. So that will support prices 
over time. So my long-term view for oil prices is quite constructive. It's I, I don't think oil prices are going to $40 in the next 10 years because of the supply-demand dynamic that's going on and the responsible use of capital. When we think of energy here at home, domestically, um, it's pretty hard not to think about pipelines. Is it possible that higher oil prices would put pressure you know, specifically on the Biden administration, as an example, to be more open to building out their pipeline capacity with Canada. Yeah, I mean, Biden campaigns on killing Keystone, which he did right away when he got into office. So Keystone XL being the pipeline that that TC Energy was building to go from Canada to Cushing, Oklahoma, they've already built the part from Cushing down to the U.S. Gulf Coast. So Biden comes in and revokes the previously issued presidential permit. You know, that's not a nice thing to do to your neighbor. However, he does that. And then all prices go up for the reasons that we've discussed with the COVID recovery and the lag on on supply from no capital spending. And he phones OPEC and says, can you send more oil? And he talks to the U.S. producers and says, can you produce more oil when he could have had it from Canada. And the thing with Canadian oil is it's that heavier gravity, which means it if you pour it out of a bucket, it looks more like molasses than gasoline. It's thicker. It's heavy. And that's what U.S. refineries really, really like. They get it from Canada. They used to get it from Venezuela. They still get a bit from Mexico. That's what they're designed for. That's how they make the best yield and the most money. The U.S. shale guys producing more really light crude that looks more like gasoline, that doesn't help the U.S. refineries. So when when the politics gets in and, and prices are high and, and they've already canceled pipelines, I don't think the pipeline discussion comes up ever again. I mean, there's a dispute between Canada and the U.S. about Line 5, which is a Enbridge pipeline that crosses the Straits of Mackinac in Ontario. But... There's workarounds for that. So the governments can just figure that out. And that's a whole bunch of politics, a whole bunch with the governor of Michigan, blah, blah, blah. So when we think about pipelines, I don't think there's any more pipelines built. When Enbridge expanded and replaced Line 3, which is the big Enbridge lines that go from Canada, uh, again, down to the U.S., when they replaced that pipeline, it's a 60-year-old pipeline, so they replaced it. That's a safety thing. That's a smart thing to do. It took forever to get it all approved and done, but it's done. It's in service, and it's a bigger capacity now than it was. So with with Enbridge Line 3 replacement, with the uh, TMX pipeline being built, with additions that... Keystone and Enbridge have made to pumping capacity and using, they put additives with the oil that allow it to flow more freely down the pipeline so you can increase the volume. All of those things have added to Canada's pipeline export capacity. TMX goes to the Canadian West Coast so we can get those barrels to places like Asia, which is fantastic. But we, we're not in need of more pipeline capacity in Canada now. So so that issue that's plagued us for years and years and years, we're good. So Biden not allowing Keystone XL to go ahead, that was rude, but 
it's not being revisited. We're good. We've got enough. The U.S. politically always worries about gasoline prices. This is going to be topical because U.S. midterm elections are coming up and U.S. gasoline prices are really close or over, depending on where you are and what grade of gasoline you're buying, four bucks a gallon, which is a big deal. So what you could see the U.S. do is something like releasing oil from their SPR. And SPR just means Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And they will do that when this happens, when there's high oil prices, when there's high gasoline prices, and it's always before something like an election or a midterm election. And they release fuel from the SPR with a goal to reducing oil prices in America so that gasoline prices go down. And basically, it's never effective. And if it is, it's effective for about an hour. But you'll see lots of talk about that. And for sure, in my view, you'll see those volumes come out. But it's always fun to watch. U.S. politics is very entertaining with the <laughs> energy sector, right? Indeed. When we're not saturated with it, it is. Um, one last question for you, Jen. You know, as a portfolio manager, you invest across the you know, spectrum of categories within within the energy sector. And you talked about, you know, changing consumer demand when it came to, you know, how we use transit and those types of things. I'm wondering, we've said often that the pandemic was an accelerant for a lot of things. I'm thinking about solar as an example, or green hydrogen, and also consumer behavior. You know, how long do energy prices have to stay high where people heating their homes gets them starting to think about heat pumps and the solar panels on the roof? Where are we in that conversation? Yeah, you know, I wish that we can get to a place in Canada where it's like California, at least as far as the solar industry is concerned, because in places like California, you can get a some places, some counties, an upfront grant. You can always get a tax incentive and you can put a solar system on your house. And a solar system means you've got panels on your roof. You've got an inverter either on your roof or on the wall in your garage. You've got battery storage and you run your house on your solar and you get net metering, which means that if you are generating more kilowatts than you're using, you can choose to either store it, fill up your batteries, or you could sell it or some of it back to the grid and get paid. If you ever need anything from the grid, you're paying net. But with, with that whole system, the panels, the inverter, the storage, you can become grid independent when you have enough storage and you have enough panels and you've got monetary incentives to do that. So that's really appealing as a consumer. And then, it, and then you think, oh, but maybe I don't want to spend however many thousand dollars for what you need on my existing home. But you look in California, new residential development, they're putting this in the whole neighborhood. And then you think about the utility and the utility is still connected to these houses. And all of these houses have solar generation and storage, which means that then the utility can use that as backup on its network. It's like a distributed grid of generation and storage. And, and the user, like you and I, can control all of this on an app on our phone. You can decide, I'm not going to send any to the utility or I'm going to allow them to take 
up to 50% of what I generate as long as my batteries are 80% full. And you've got that kind of independence and flexibility. And it's, it's really empowering. And it also gives people a lot of comfort that, you know, I can always charge my vehicle. I can, I can be independent of an outage from a storm or a fire. So I think it does help to have some, some tax incentives from the government to allay that initial cost. But the build out of that from a residential standpoint, I think will really, really continue to grow. And I would like to see that become easier for Canadians to do because the technology is such that it, it it's fine if you live where like I do where it's sunny but it snows and it's cold the 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 panels work they're they're the batteries work it's it's all usable so I think that's a big growth area going forward that that is tangible that that we can see and and covet well Jen we've unpacked a lot here in this discussion and you know I, I want to thank you for that because it's been super informative and you know it's a subject it touches all of us tangibly you know in just about every aspect of our lives so appreciate your insights and for joining us today and thanks to everybody that joined us today as well we're happy to have Jen here as, as regular as it's necessary because it's a subject that uh, continues to evolve and of course you can check out any of our on the money podcast episodes in both Apple and Spotify I want to thank all of you for joining us on behalf of everybody at Dynamic Funds. We continue to wish all of you good health and safety. You've been listening to another edition of On the Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.